Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Michael Reese. Happy Festivus. And Eric Ostrich. Hello. So this week, we just wanted to kind of get together and talk about some of the interesting topics that we hear about in the community. And this is talking amongst ourselves. And as I'd mentioned in a previous episode, sometimes when we just get together on these uh, episodes and the pre-show talk, we're just like, how's it going? What's up? And I'm like always fascinated to hear about what other people are doing and like, oh, they tell me about some cool new project or tech. And I'm like, oh, tell me about that. So that's just, this is an opportunity for us to kind of have those conversations in the open. So it's just a less formal, conversational and uh, yeah, festivist for the rest of us. So airing of grievances shall begin now. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Grievance number one, runtime configuration. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is an interesting one. And that is, uh, you know, has been getting a lot of attention just about how to do, how to manage configuration. Yeah, I have, uh, unfortunately, no real grievance with it. Uh, I haven't actually run into very many cases where I, where I want uh, a runtime configuration other than just read an environment variable, which is a pretty easy to solve problem. Um, have any of you guys ever done like the config change callbacks so that you can actually re react to a change in config live in your app? I have not. Yeah, I haven't either. All right. Well, that might be a topic uh, if any listeners have done that. Uh, I've actually, I think some people in the NERFS community try to do things along those lines. Um, anyone who has experience doing config change callbacks, we would love to chat with you and hear a little bit more about that. I know we have had a guest on, and I'm trying to find it real fast, uh, where we talked about that there's a library and I'm blanking on it. So I'll find that while you guys keep going. Well, related to uh, config would probably be deployment. I know this is an area that has had a lot of updates in the last year. Um, we had Elixir 1.9, which brought kind of native releases. Um, Eric, have you done any uh, any of the native release stuff as opposed to distillery? Yeah, I think most of the projects, if not all of the projects I'm on, are uh, 1.9 releases. And I think it's been a, a a pretty great upgrade. I guess speaking of of config runtime stuff, I, I like the split between the the like config.exs and then kind of your dev stuff, dev prod test. Are like compile time, and then you have config releases. Um, I think that's been a pretty pretty good split. Um, and then in that config releases, you can just look at environment variables or or whatever, and, and kind of do your config that way. And I think that's been a pretty great upgrade uh, personally. So on my project that I'm deploying these days, uh, it's it still is using Distillery. I just haven't gone back to do the change. It's using the Distillery. Do you guys remember the Distillery docs where they talk about the two step Docker build. 
So yes. you can use like one that has all your build time dependencies. It builds the release. Uh, if you need to do NPM stuff, um, first of all, I feel for you. Second of all, uh, you only do it in the one image, and then you end up building a second image, which pretty much just has your tarball and all the compiled assets in it. Yes. Um, is that pretty easy still to do with the Wixer 1.9 stuff? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Grapevine doesn't run in Docker, but uh, I have it as a multi-stage uh, as well. So I have a, a build step that does all the Elixir stuff. I have a node step because uh, there's a lot of JavaScript. And then finally, there's a release step. Um, so really, the only difference is that the release step in a standard, I don't know, and if you if I was running this in Docker, I'd have a fourth step that was like the actual, this is what's running. That would then copy out the just the release from that. So yeah, I think it works pretty great. Um, <clears throat> the one thing that it does, Elixir releases doesn't have compared to distillery is that it doesn't automatically generate a tarball for you. <laughs> so you have to do that one single line <laughs> uh, and that's it. But yes, uh, so with, uh, so actually it's because of distillery and their Docker configuration was where I first learned that you could even do that. That was a thing uh, that you can do two stage uh, Docker files, which I just think is awesome it's, as a cool tech hack. So it, it's just so much better than having to like export it with volumes and then re-import it into another one. Uh, but yeah, so I, I love that. And um, I'm just kind of in the same boat you are. I had a like a CI pipeline already set up. It's with the CD and it's doing Docker and uh, distillery releases. And we just haven't quite yet moved it all over to the new Elixir releases, which we've done some initial research and it looks like it shouldn't be a big deal. Uh, but we just haven't made the jump and actually finished it. But uh, yeah, so as far as I can tell, everything still works with that. One of the other things that I really like with Elixir releases compared to distillery is it's really easy to change the name of the node that's running just through like environment variables. It wasn't necessarily hard with distillery, but it's just a lot easier because it's like cooked in somewhere else already for you. <laughs> so if you look at the m.sh.eex file, you like all you have to do is like have export release node and you can do whatever you want or like release distribution. Um, and it just kind of renames the node as it starts for you, uh, which I think is pretty sweet. Okay, so we've kind of talked about Docker. And I'm, one of the topics I think is worth kind of jumping into is de uh, deployment. Because I, you know, with uh, the Utah Elixir meetup, and I know with other meetups, you're constantly interfacing with people who are very new to Elixir, maybe even just exploring it. And one of the common questions is, okay, I've got something that I want to actually deploy somewhere. I want it to live outside of my machine. And I think it's just worth talking about options for deployment and considerations. Uh, because sometimes, you know, it's like, you know, they might listen to this podcast and I say, oh, well, I'll use Kubernetes. And Josh, he uses Kubernetes. And Eric doesn't use Kubernetes, but he uses something else. And it's like, there's all these different options. And some of them are like Kubernetes is, I would call like an enterprise kind of option. And it is not necessary at all for just getting your site up. So I'd love to hear like what you guys have experience with, uh, other ways you've kind of that you know people are doing and having success. Well, um, so in the past, I worked at a place where um, we managed all our own hardware. Um, it had some relation to the banking industry, and banks are very leery of any tech that is newer than 25 years old for all their various reasons. Um, and so uh, it was all managed hardware. Um, and there, I actually still, I started by using Docker, uh, like a single Docker container, but it was actually not like the two-stage Docker. Uh, it was just kind of build it all in one and it just ran like a mixed 
uh, phoenix.run command. And that actually got me quite far. Um, I basically just had a CI that would build that Docker image, push it to a registry. Um, and then I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the DevOps tool. There's a DevOps tool that makes it really easy to kind of like broadcast a message to a set of nodes. And, and they handle kind of, kind of an event sourcing model for how you uh, react to those events on your servers. But we, we had something in place that was along those lines. So I would just basically dock, broadcast a message saying, hey, the new version of the app is this uh, Docker SHA. And it would pull it down and then run a, do a rolling deploy. And uh, that worked for a while. Um, when I switched, I'm at a new company now called Spiff. And when I first came into the team, there was no CI and there was no deployed code anywhere. And so I just kind of had to do it from scratch. I ran it on Heroku for about a month. Um, and uh, pretty quickly, though, I figured I was going to want multi-node and, uh, and things like channels, you know, using PG2 so that you, you share channels and presence information between the nodes. And so, so the next thing I tried was just, hey, let me start up a Google Kubernetes engine in Google Cloud. And uh, I spent about a half a day reading Google uh, Kubernetes docs which was just enough for me to know how to do a basic load balancer and, um, and spin up a pod. And that's about as much as I still know about <laughs> Kubernetes. A year and a half later, that has still been my CI. I, the only thing I have changed is like upgraded Docker versions and what face image I'm using. And I literally haven't changed anything else, deployed hundreds of times between here and there, and it still just works. So. That's my experience with Kubernetes. I realize lots of people have had more frustrating experiences, um, but mine has, has been that I just stuck to the basics and it works in the basic way. Yeah, I, so I've, I guess I've started with a like $5 Linode uh, generating my release and then like hand typing SCP. And like eventually I, I like did it enough that I had the control R to like look back and bash. So I would just kind of type SCP, hit enter, um, and for a while, I actually was deploying to three nodes. This was when I was playing with XVenture clustering. So I would set up Tmux to have like set three separate panes, turn on pane syncing, <laughs> and then do the same thing. I have since upgraded my side projects to a bash script that does it for me. So I, it's a little little more sophisticated. But for work stuff, we, uh, we started with Roku as well with, with just the proc file. It does mixphx.serve. I think that my only problem with Heroku at this point, we just did another one on Heroku just to kind of get out the door and be done. I just want it to generate a release and run the release so that every time the dyno starts up, it's not compiling it from scratch again, uh, which takes longer than you think it should. <laughs> so if I can figure that out, and I'm, I know there's a way to do it. Uh, I just haven't spent the time. So if, if, Heroku could run a release. I think it would be really good if you didn't need any kind of clustering or you didn't have a chat or whatever. So that we've done that. And then the other thing that we've mostly done uh, for most of our projects, I guess, is we do uh, Ansible deployment. So we, I have it set up so it builds a release locally in a local Docker container, copies it out to a temp folder, and then Ansible will SCP that for you, handle all of the... I don't know, calls to restart everything, start, stop, and all that for you. So it's a very fancy bash script <laughs> uh, in that case. But um, so we've done that. And then most recently, we've done a lot of the the Kubernetes stuff. Um, but 
not too much with Elixir, just kind of in general. That's kind of been our, our current DevOps project. Um, yeah. I've had experience uh, kind of similar. Like you mentioned the whole uh, compilation process like that happens. I've, I've done that too where uh, this is a, a kind of mistake, I guess, that I'd share uh, to learn from. As we, uh, when we first started at one of the companies, you know, we were going with a product that didn't exist to creating a new thing and having to get it deployed. And so that meant, uh, you know, building, so we were doing it with Docker. Uh, it was not Kubernetes or anything. It was a little bit more homegrown. Uh, we had an ops team that was uh, very proficient with their tooling. So we let them kind of own that. And so it was just basically putting all the source code into Docker and then, uh, you know, on, on startup of the uh, Docker container, it would compile. And, you know, sometimes when you compile and it's pulling down like time zone data and, you know, build and like it takes, you know, it, it takes a long time. And if you have anything that's monitoring that startup process, it says, oh, this is taking too long. It must be bad. I'm going to kill it and restart it. And it's like, we'd get that sometimes. It's like, dang it. You know, that, so we'd had to like, you know, let's change the, let it, let it take longer. So our rolling deploys were much slower, <laughs> but it, it worked. So one thing, I, I haven't been back to that mode of doing things. Uh, so one thing I would try is maybe just doing a compile as part of the building of the container so that all of the stuff would be up to date. But I don't know if it would still try and do a recompile uh, when you actually go to start it. So I'm not sure about that. But that was just one thing I, I just kind of caution, just kind of be aware of. Yeah, at least my experience with Heroku, when you do the Git push, it builds all of your dependencies. But I feel like there's a decent chance, more often than not, that it will still compile your application code, um, which is, it's not slow, it's, or it's not like slow or fast or whatever. It's, but it's, it's like, when you do a dyno restart, you expect it to be pretty instant because you're like, this is already compiled, it's Elixir, we're fast, woo, go. And then it's just like 15 seconds later, still going what's like come on what's what's happening <laughs> uh and then it finally like reboots so there's just that like just awkward enough pause while it's compiling like your application code that it's it just feels too slow so yeah if you can get rid of that and like pre-compile your application then i think like heroku is is like really good for small to mid-size applications right because like <laughs> yeah I, yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, I would highly suggest, uh, Eric, you should probably call Dialyzer right during your application startup. <laughs> then you then you can really find out how long it takes a Dyno CPU to <laughs> to run a full Dialyzer. Yeah, and I, I will say I, I think I agree with that. If you're not planning to do any, uh, you know, like using Erlang distribution in your project which a lot of projects just don't need right out of the gate. Um, Heroku like was a great experience for me overall. Um, super easy to get up and going. Still the fastest way to just go from a PR to code running uh, that's live that somebody can hit. Uh, and last time I used them, like, you know, all of the TLS certificate stuff was automated, which is amazing. Um, that kind of stuff, I still hate having to do that with Kubernetes. Um, I have it most of the way automated, but it still is like a couple commands and I have to give myself a reminder to do it before the current one expires. And so totally agree. I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of those kinds of tools like Heroku or Gigalixer, some of those are awesome ways to get up and running quickly with the project. And it's pretty, it's pretty surprising how far you can go with the project and really not needing that stuff. Like unless you're, unless you're specifically 
trying to do, you know, Phoenix presence or uh, pub sub across a cluster, you can, you can get pretty far without needing that stuff. Yeah. I've talked to a, a few companies now that, that are running on Heroku. And one of the things I like to ask, like, okay, how many dinos do you have? And is it one? And <laughs> it's always been, yes. <laughs> and like, they, they just have a single dyno and it like just works for a very long time. So that's, that's why, like, I think like even up to like a midsize application that's serving a decent amount of traffic. Like, I think you can, like, you can squeeze a lot out of that, that even that, like, uh, most basic dyno, 512 megabytes, like one CPU, like you could splurge, get the two CPUs so that you can be concurrent, right? <laughs> and like, just compared to other languages, I think you can go really far with, with our Roku dyno or even like uh, Gigalixer, um, any any of these things that is just like a get push. I think you can go a lot further than you would think <laughs> with Elixir. I know from experience just having done uh, Rails deployments to uh, Heroku, and like one of the things, I'm not bashing on Rails, but you know, it is, uh, there's a single thread. There's one instance of your application that can handle requests. And so when you are exploring and just putting up a website, just to kind of see it and get it so that there's something there, that works great. But you pretty, is, if you get to a point where you're receiving traffic, you quickly outgrow that. But with Elixir, because of the concurrency model, even when you're on one CPU, you can actually handle quite a bit. You know, it may not be blazing fast because it's having to handle all of these things kind of, you know, concurrently take, take turns, but it, it works. And that really is an impressive thing. Uh, so one of the other things I just want to mention is like, I've got a friend who came out of like the JavaScript boot camps as his way into development. And so he came from like a front end and a little bit of exposure to Node. And now he's been exploring, uh, playing with and exploring Elixir. And now he's trying to get to the point of doing deployment. And so he's like, I don't want to do operations. Like, you know, this is, this is the obstacle to my goal. And so I just want to mention a couple other ideas I had uh, that people could do. Uh, like, especially if it's an open source project or something you want to get up, you can just, like you guys talking about, like I can just have a shell script that like a bash script that I run on my machine that maybe, uh, you know, SSH is into a VPC, like a digital ocean or something like that, where I just have like one $5 box and I can just do a git pull and pull my source code down and build it right there and just say, you know, Phoenix start, you know, Phoenix run, Phoenix serve, I guess. Yes. And, but that's all you really need to do. And you have something that's up and going. Uh, one other topic I thought would be worth mentioning is uh, in a couple of days, we're having our uh, Elixir meetup and our uh, wonderful Cody Pohl, who is a uh, local here, is going to be presenting on this very topic, which is deployment. And I'm hoping to be able to record that and be able to post uh, a video of it uh, online. And so if, there, if, I, if that works out and I don't have any technical snafus that go on with that recording, then I'll, I'll tell you guys about it next week. Plus one for the $5 DigitalOcean box. I have one of those and it's still running like four of my personal projects. Yep. <laughs> um, and yeah, you can, you can just start with like get clone your code onto the DigitalOcean box, mix phoenix.run and, you know, off to the races. So um, great way to get started. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out.
Yeah, and I'm I'm going to include a, a gist to the deploy script I have just to show the uh, what is ten total lines and three of them are white space <laughs> with a, a variable for like what host name you're going to. So like it's super easy. Um, SSH can run single off commands and so like stop the app, untar it, run migration, start the app, and like uh, it's super simple. And that's with the the release version. Nice. Of, of and then yeah. That's great. So one of the benefits I will just kind of point out for, why don't we just mention quickly about releases? We've talked about releases a fair bit before. One of the benefits that in relation to what we've already said is that you avoid that compile time startup. Like it's just not going to happen. It's already been compiled and it will just start. So you get a faster startup time. Uh, but then you do have like uh, how you kind of have in your little script here, you can check out in the show notes that he, uh, he's sharing. Uh, the way you handle migrations is a little different because mix as a tool isn't installed. So you don't have like mix tasks. So you have to do migrations a little bit differently or any like uh, tasks that you want to run like mix tasks. So that's just something to be aware of. So any tips that you'd give Eric on how you like maybe a guide that you followed or anything like that for uh, how someone would go about starting like running their migrations? Uh, yeah. So this was ripped directly out of the distillery V. I think it was one at the time. I've just kind of dragged it along. Uh, <clears throat> but you make a release task module. I can link that as well. That uh, you eval into your node. So when you eval with releases, 1.9 releases, it doesn't start anything. So you have to, you have, you have to manually start whatever you need to, um, which the distillery docs tell you. So like start apps, crypto, SSL, Postgrex, Ecto, EctoSQL. And then like your, any of your applications, whatever repos you have, and then it just kind of starts up everything, loads your data or loads your application, but doesn't actually start it. Um, and then boots your repos and then runs the migrations from your priv folder, um, which are copied over in the uh, release version. Uh, and then uh, once that's done, so you, you do the, there's a line. So you take your app instead of uh, RPC or eval those are the two choices to just run one-off code so you eval this thing in quotes and then it it just runs yeah so it's 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 not much harder you just have to include the one module and know how to run the one line so instead of mix ecto migrate it's just a app eval app release task migrate so it's pretty similar but just different enough that you might not catch it <laughs> yeah one other small pro tip whenever you're setting this up for the first time uh, just get it working manually the first time. Don't try to do it from, uh, from CI. Uh, there's like very little in my career that is more frustrating than being like, wait, that didn't work. Why didn't it work? Uh, how do I get into my CI? What changed in like 25 commits later where it's like, fix CI, fix CI, fix CI for 25 commits in a row. None of them actually fixed CI, by the way. <laughs> um, that, it's, a, it's a slow feedback cycle and kind of frustrating. So uh, usually worth just getting it working once manually and knowing all the right uh, steps. You'll probably still break one or two things when you try to automate it, but um, you'll be in a much better starting spot. And one of the really nice uh, things about Elixir, sort of kind of tag teaming on that, if, if you do it manually, you can just create a new Linode or DigitalOcean instance and you don't have to install like anything you just have to make a deploy user don't run as root <laughs> and then after that you just copy your stuff up you release prop like 
by default comes with Erlang. It comes with everything you need. So maybe you need to install like image magic or like Postgres if you're using a local node and like that's it. Like compared to anything where you ship the source code over and like that runs like Ruby or uh, node or I don't know, whatever else there is. Like it comes with everything it needs and it just turns on and goes. <laughs> Um, taking a small diversion from beginner-friendly tips, uh, I recently had a, a case where somebody on this podcast picked Observer CLI, and I went ahead and added it to one of my projects. And I kind of played around with it. I was like, "Oh, that was really cool." And uh, and then like a week later, I noticed that one of my Elixir apps was using more memory than it usually did, and I was able to just like jump in there and start up Observer CLI. Didn't have to fuss with like getting nodes connected or cookies or any of that stuff, just like get onto the remote console, uh, observer CLI. And I was totally able to start poking around and, uh, and finding things. And I was really surprised when my app boots, uh, the code server process, the thing that like holds all the byte code, current byte code, and it facilitates hot code upgrades. Um, that one process was using 30 megs out of the about hundred megs of my entire, uh, process. So, I was not aware that uh, all the compiled bytecode of, of my various dependencies and standard library and my own code added up to like a third of the total weight of my VM in production. Um, also, pretty awesome that the total weight of the VM in production is only 100 megs of memory. <laughs> pretty easy to, to fit that onto basically any node anywhere on the internet. So um, big thumbs up to, to the Beam team. Yeah, I remember our first uh, Elixir app in production um, compared to a Ruby app, like a week after running, we looked at the Heroku Dino graphs and it's like, look, it's stable. And it's like a fifth of what it's like the total memory. That is really fun. Yeah. It's like the only, it's, it's funny because like in production we have two, uh, so it's in Kubernetes and we have two pods that are running the main Elixir app. We have other services there. Some are Ruby, some are Elixir, uh, but like the main app, and there's only the only reason we have two is so we can do hot, you know, just like easy up uh, upgrades and rolling updates, and without um, and in case one does go down, that's like the only reason. Like we could totally handle all of our traffic, which has you know a lot of money going through it. You know, like a lot of you know uh, like the money passing through our system is significant, and so like we could totally do it on one. It's it's really fun. So I guess that might lead us into the interesting topic of hot code reloading. Because um, I know if I just speak for myself, Michael, has, I see he's got a, a little rant he's preparing <laughs> or a soapbox. But uh, one of the things I think is interesting is when I was first learning about Elixir, I came to it and just learning that hot code reloading was a thing that exists, I was super impressed with. And I was like, wow, that is amazing. And you know that was that was something that I started to investigate and see how I could actually do it, and and so I just love you know kind of like revisit the topic. I've heard other people you know in the community kind of uh, lament or discuss this kind of idea, and I'd love to hear you guys as kind of you know current where the state of things are today. Um, well, I'll I'll actually start with a very old article. So when I was in college, the first time I ever heard about anything related to Erlang, I didn't even know the word Erlang. But my, one of my professors told us this story about um, a hack that happened way back in the day um, that has been referred to as the Great Greek Wiretapping. Um, and leading up to the Olympic Games in Greece, um, there was a hack that happened where someone had managed to hot code reload 
one module and it gave them the ability to wiretap any phone number that they decided that they wanted. Uh, and it wasn't discovered until well after uh, things were in place. And as far as I know, they still have never uh, narrowed it down to a specific person. So I'll drop one, just a quick article that I found that talks about this. But that was actually the first time I ever heard about it. And I remember sitting in that class and being like, wait, they did what? Like, they just changed the definition of something as the phone switch was running. And like, how long was that phone switch running for? Like, doesn't it ever get restarted and reload its code from source? And it, it just blew my mind. And then, you know, years go by. Uh, I'll, let's also drop a quick link to Erlang the movie. So we'll drop a link to this as well. Um, this was another thing that years later blew my mind. It's a YouTube video that is clearly made in the early 80s uh, and with the budget of a middle school uh, end of month <laughs> project. But yet the thing that they're showing is that they're showing that they can change the definition of code and they can hot, re hot code reload while people are having a conversation through that software. And at that point in my career, I had still never seen anything like that. Like really didn't even know that that was in the realm of possibility. So I'll say I, I start into all of this topic with the bias of like hot code reloading is cool. Uh, it may not be practical. It may have lots of caveats, but it is really cool. Um, and so I still, you know, to this day, I've, I've never um, done hot code reloading as, uh, as like a deployment mechanism. Um, there's things to be aware of, like, uh, if you have a um, a gen server somewhere, uh, and let's say it's recording some state, like maybe it's uh, recording a number of requests per second and periodically flushing that somewhere else. Um, if you do a hot code reload and the new version of the code is expecting you to have an extra key, but when your gen server was initialized, it didn't know to create that key because it was on the old version of the code, you have to figure out how to like migrate the data inside that gen server to the new form of the data that that code is expecting. Um, and there are hooks to do this, and there are very well established patterns to handle these kinds of problems. It's not an area of expertise that I have invested into. Um, so that being said, uh, I'll drop one more link here. Uh, so let's see, Connor Rigby, uh, let's see if I can find this. He had a, a blog post a little while ago on the Embedded Elixir blog. Um, and he talked about using uh, hot code reload as a way to get a fast uh, feedback cycle for um, testing out code that's running on a device. So if you're, uh, if you're interfacing with like a new sensor and you haven't interfaced with it before, so you're kind of following some docs, but you're just trying to kind of play around with it, he wanted a quick way to get new code onto that device. And by default with, with uh, NERVS, the way you do this is you run a, a mixed task called mixed firmware that builds you a new firmware image. It's about 35 megabytes, but it's your, it's your Linux kernel and Erlang and OTP and your standard library and all your dependencies and your app all gets compiled down. And then you SSH or SCP that to the device and it re reboots itself. And uh, things like Raspberry Pis don't reboot themselves very, very fast. It's, you know, it's like 30 seconds. It's not terrible, but it's, it's kind of slow. Um, so he has this, uh, this blog post and he walks through an alternative where you basically make your own little mixed task where you connect to the NERVS device over Erlang distribution. And then you run through and you hot code reload all the modules that are defined inside of your app, um, which generally that's kind of the only code that you're changing and you're wanting fast feedback on. Um, and so I started trying this out on a project and it's 
been really cool. Uh, there's been a couple of times where I've crashed things. And uh, if you, you know, I found out, I'm, I'm learning about all the little edge cases of if a supervisor restarts too many times, uh, then it actually crashes. And if that goes all the way back to your application, then you basically get an error log message saying, hey, your app was too unstable. <laughs> I couldn't keep it up. So I shut it down. Uh, and you can then manually restart it on the device or you can reboot the device. But uh, I'm learning about all those kinds of things. And one of the funny things about it is it is sort of a way to, one of the goals for my code in NERVS is to be really resilient to unexpected events. Hot code reloading all the modules in your app in a somewhat random order <laughs> turns out to be a pretty unexpected series of events that I'm not generally writing my code to expect. And so I'm kind of my own chaos monkey, uh, if you're familiar with the chaos monkey project. Um, and I'm just kind of like throwing network traffic at my device. I'm forcing it to like up to change definitions of functions. And um, it does almost all the time just get the new version of the code and change behavior immediately. And that's honestly pretty astonishing. It feels like magic that um, the other day I was working with some servos and sensors and uh, one of the servos was turning the wrong direction. It was always going the opposite direction of what it needed to to correct for drift. And I changed something on my laptop, mix firmware.reload, and all of a sudden I see the servo just whoop, flip the other way. And it's now doing the correct, uh, the correct behavior. And that felt pretty magical. It was a one second update to, to see my device start doing the right thing. So I guess all I'm going to say here is uh, hot code reload. I still haven't ever used it in a production app um, on a server side app. I think it is really promising. And if it's something that's useful for you in your use case, uh, worth looking into. It's not, not something that you should be afraid of uh, playing with. It's probably something you should be a little cautious about rolling into production without having a lot of buy-in and expertise on your team. I have one fun story to share. Uh, so I have a coworker and uh, something he did fairly recently even was, you know, uh, had he logged into, you know, got a console and attached to a running uh, node on the server and uh, was able to re reload and like redefine the module, like, like a single module, like in production to like fix a bug. It's like, that's like, <laughs> it's like also, you know, it was checked into Git and run through the whole CI, but like it was fixed, like nothing, you know, so it's just log into each, each of the two servers and like here, redefine the module and it was like fixed. And like, we didn't even have to redeploy, you know, for like several days, you know, cause like, oh, I took care of it. So like, we'll just keep going. So that is not your normal, like what they, what they mean when they say hot code reloading. I don't think, you know, that's, that, that is uh but you know, like, Hey, it's really cool that you can do that. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll 
more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. So one of the things I thought was interesting about Hot Code Reloading is like, like uh, Mike, you did a really good job kind of explaining the idea of having to migrate in-memory uh, data that you have. But there's also the concern that you have to be able to, like if you were to do a, a downgrade, so you have to be able to say, well, I have this state and I have to, like, if I roll back to a previous state, there's a hot code reload going down. So you have to be able to manage that too. So there's a lot of things uh, where that comes into play and makes it complicated. And you just have to think, is that something that's important to my system? Because for a lot of systems, it isn't. It is not a critical factor to say, I need to be able to have like nine nines and 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 nothing ever goes down. The system is always running and state is always in memory. You know, like for most systems, we don't have that as a constraint. Uh, so, but there are, I think IoT is a great case for that. And my, Michael, maybe you can speak to this, like with releases, uh, like with nerves, um, when I push a new firmware and I say upgrade to the new firmware, is it doing a hot code upgrade or what is it doing? Like how, how does it shut down and restart? How does that do that? Um, by default, um, the behavior is uh, when you push a firmware, um, it will have allocated a little bit of disk space on the device um, to have kind of like two partitions. And it has a little bit that tells it which one should it be using right now. And so when you start to push, what it does is it writes all of your new tarball. So it, it does release. Actually, in, in uh, NERVs, you don't ever really see the release um, unless you need to customize it. Uh, basically, when you run mixed firmware, it's building release and you don't have to think about it. And so it takes that tarball and it writes it to the secondary partition on your drive. And um, when, when that's done, it checks the checksum. And if everything looks good, then it, it switches that bit and reboots itself. So no hot code update. It's just basically writing your new release into a separate place and then going to boot from that on its next boot. And uh, if it actually fails to come back up under that new one, it'll flip that bit back and go back to the last one that had been working. And so that's, uh, there's various reasons for that. Um, if there are things that you want to update like a NIF, uh, so let's say you had like a, a Rust-based NIF inside of your app that was helping with some mathematical calculations, um, you can't really hot code reload those. Um, and so switching, you know, just rebooting is a more holistic way, like you can upgrade your Elixir version, you can upgrade basically anything um, because you're just going to start, you can actually upgrade your Linux kernel version by doing that methodology. So um, it's more holistic and that has become the standard. Um, but there are some people who do things with hot code reloading down to their devices and uh, the tooling around it, it's not built into nerves, um, but it's not too hard to do. Cool. Um, so there's one more thing I want to add to this, the hot code reload uh, talk. So. I'm not 100% positive on this, but I believe what I read in, I think, designing for scalability with Erlang OTP, not super positive, it was that one. But when you do the hot co-reload, that code server is only hanging on to two versions of the module, the current and an old one. Um, and I, this is, so specifically, this is the part I'm not 100% positive on. So I think 
gen servers are not automatically upgraded to the new module unless you call the module by like a full alias to it. So that's so there's I just know there's a chance that if your module is happening to run the old code because it never upgraded and then you do two version bumps, uh, that gen server is just flat out terminated like right there and then because it's its code just got ejected. So it's could could be what you want, right? Because then it a supervisor will just restart it with the new code and you're fine. But that's just something extra to think about while you're headed down this code reload path. So one of the things I think is uh, an important decision when people think about uh, how they want to deploy and, and particularly roll out the code changes like hot code or, or not, is are you the one who has to manage the whole thing? Or are you like, because it, it, it affects the way you design your application, right? Like the fact that I think if I am managing state in gen servers and it is being upgraded or there needs to be an upgrade, I need to know about that and, and plan for that if I'm doing hot code upgrades and reloads. Uh, the other aspect is like, uh, do I have an operations team, someone who else, who uh, other people who are managing the deployment and the, the runtime environment? Because if that's the case, then you know, they might say, oh, well, we're, we're using Kubernetes and that's the environment it's running in. And it really does not make sense to try and do a hot code reload on a Docker container, right? Like that, that is, that's kind of against the idea of what Docker was intended for. I think you could, I think it's possible to do this where you could have a Docker container reach out and grab new code and pull it in. But that's like terrible, right? I think it's, it's a cool hack. You could do that. Uh, but I think that's not what it's intended for. Uh, so I just think that's part of the aspect is you think who owns the responsibility for this? And if you look at the, the kind of the way the modern DevOps has moved, it is really around, you know, Kubernetes has kind of won the, the Docker swarm, Kubernetes kind of war. It's, it kind of seemed to won a lot of the, the mindshare. And, and Docker has won the mindshare for like developer and deployment. Uh, so like, unless you want to kind of be really outside the mainstream, then uh, there's no reason to not just use the, the kind of the best practices for the industry. And so I want to, I'll, I'll drop a link to this in the show notes, but there was a recent, it was a little while ago now, it was a, an Elixir conference talk about how uh, Docker and Elixir do not have to be enemies, right? They, they can work together well. It's not like you'd have to do it the Docker way or the Elixir way, you know, the Beam way. It's not really, it doesn't have to be like that. Uh, and it was a really good uh, talk that uh, he really describes, like he talks about it in terms of culture. So I'll find a link to that and drop that in the show notes. Just one final note, I'll drop one, um, one additional link here as well. There was a great talk at Codebeam San Francisco um, in 2019 called The Art of the Live Upgrade, Lessons from 10 Years of Evolving a Live System. And uh, this, is a, uh, this gentleman works on a team where they have been doing live upgrades for 10 years, as it says. And um, he just has a lot of uh, kind of pro tips if your team's going to be doing that. To Mark's point, from, from watching the presentation, I very much get the impression that at this company, this team of engineers is wholly responsible for this piece of software. It runs much more like a database than it does a web app. Um, and by that, I mean, like, you know, they are the sysadmins of this thing. And if there are going to be deploys going out, like that is an event, it has a process, like a human process that goes along with what will be the changes going out and how is it monitored and how is it measured. Um, what do rollbacks look like? So uh, I think this the thing that's interesting to me here is 
I think it's a little unfair when I hear people say things like, oh, you should just never hot code upgrade. What I think we're finding out about Elixir as a language is that it's not just good for one thing. <laughs> it's good at a lot of things. You know, if you, if you go back and look at when uh, Facebook was using it to power Facebook chat, that's not something I ever would have tried to do as a Python project or a Ruby project. Um, it would not have been great at IO bound, heavily concurrent traffic um, and things like a distribution, uh, distributed system deployment. <laughs> that would have been really hard. But also a lot of my Elixir apps don't look like that either. A lot of my Elixir apps look like a traditional web app and they probably don't want to deal with the fact that like, who are all the nodes in the cluster right now and what consensus algorithm am I using? And it's really, really cool that we can do those things with Elixir. And if you do want to solve those problems, I think you totally can do those in Elixir, um, just like uh, Heroku did with their routing layer for a long time. Actually, maybe still, I think their, their routing layer still is uh, Erlang based. And so if you're doing, if you're solving those kinds of problems, hot code reloading, uh, a lot of this, uh, you know, a lot of these other deep tools that are available, like dealing with consensus protocols and other things, or the React core library, pretty amazing what you can get done with those things. Doesn't mean you should try to roll it into a Nerves app or into a Phoenix app. One of the other things I think is worth mentioning is just talking about how Phoenix itself, like Chris McCord and, and the, the team behind Phoenix have worked very hard to make it so we can have things like Live View, where I do have long running state that is in my gen, that it's, it's managed in the gen server. Uh, I have a persistent connection, and, uh, but I can still have a rolling upgrade where I do lose that connection. Uh, the state is temporarily lost, but the client has been given enough information about the session to reload that state and reconnect and re reestablish it. So like there are things that have been done in the community to give us the kind of the best of both. Like I can have the long running thing, the long state management, and I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, migrating me memory uh, because I, just so long as I have a, the ability to kind of rebuild the, the, the state that's needed from the session information for a user. So there's things like that. Uh, so we can, we can win with everything, right? Well, that might be a good place to wrap up our topic. Uh, so we had fun talking about uh, Docker deployment, distillery, all the Ds and, and, and hot code reloading and all the state management. So that's uh, a lot of fun stuff there. We've got put a lot of links in the show notes. So please uh, make sure to check out some of those. So let's move to picks. Eric, how about you? All right. So I'm going to pick. Uh, so I'm also a co-host on Elixir, uh, our smart software as uh, I guess at this point, you wouldn't, you will know it as Elixir Wizards uh, at this point. We've been out, I think when this goes, we're four or five episodes in. Um, so I just want to call it out again. And then also specifically pick season one of, of our show because we talked, uh, Mark was on it. We talked about running Elixir in production. So if you enjoyed kind of what we talked about here, there's 11 more episodes uh, only about that <laughs> where we interviewed a bunch of different uh, companies and figured out how they were running in production. So I will post a link to season one there. Cool. Michael, how about you? All right, first pick is that uh, the other day on Twitter, James Edward Gray II, who um, was a recent guest on the show, he posted that he was trying to do a project with, uh, a, he said, a big LED project. And uh, Frank Conleth replied with a suggestion for a product he might be interested in. It is a 50 millimeter uh, LED. <laughs> it is a fully functioning handmade LED. So this is 
10 times the size of an LED that you would have maybe seen in the past. And it has a big disclaimer that says, this is not a child's toy, which <laughs> is exactly the kind of thing that makes me want to buy a product on the internet. Uh, so I just got a huge kick out of the fact that, that, uh, that this product exists and that somehow Frank knows about it. Um, a slightly more uh, sensible pick. I'll also put in here, I've been uh, continuing to play around with, around with Scenic a bit. Um, I uh, am, am trying to make a Scenic component. And then as part of that, my Scenic component needs to react to updates about sensors that are measuring the, the battery voltage or fuel level uh, of, of a project. And so Boyd pointed me at a library that he had built called Scenic Sensor. And uh, this basically just means that like, if your sensor, you know, maybe it's updating like once a second or, or three times a second or something, and your scene might need to like ask the value of that sensor more frequently as it's updating frames. Um, and if you just want to have like a little sort of like buffer between those two worlds so that they don't have to sync up with each other, um, scenic sensor is a pretty easy way to do that. So just starting to look into it, but enjoying it so far. Those are my picks. That is crazy. That LED, that's like a, a $60 LED. <laughs> it's huge. It Just, only uses 30 milliamps to power the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, that's like, uh, that's like a thousandth of the power of turning on your toaster. <laughs> man, it just kind of makes me think of like the strange projects you could undertake with that. That's cool. Well, so my pick today, I got two. Um, we're coming into the holiday season. So you sometimes have some downtime. And there's a movie that you might want to check out called Hot Rod from 2007. And, the, and Michael knows this movie. Uh, this movie is like, it is, it is like one of those intentionally bad movies that makes it awesome, like good. It's kind of in the, in the vein of Napoleon Dynamite, that kind of, kind of odd humor. Uh, I just loved it. There's like this one scene in particular. I I literally had to pause it because I was falling on the ground laughing and it hurt so bad. Was it the dance scene? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that is a fun one. It's from 2007. You can check it out. Uh, I think it's on Netflix. Um, I'm not sure, uh, but you can find it on different streaming options. Uh, so the other art, uh, the other one I want to share is I just uh, posted a, a blog article this morning. So a previous post I'd done was about using Visual Studio Code for Elixir development. And sometimes people have, a, have had a bad experience with that, like they're using the Elixir LS extension and it crashes repeatedly. And so I've helped some people sort out those issues and I wrote it up into a blog post. So this covers installing Elixir and Erlang using the ASDF version manager, which we've talked about several times before. And additionally, I tell you how to identify when you have incompatible versions, uh, when they're installed, how to fix it, and so check it out on my website on the blog, uh, thinkingelixir.com. And there's a link to that article in the show notes. Well, thanks guys for joining around and just kind of talking about things. And it was, I had a lot of fun. So if people want to follow you guys online, Eric, where do they go for you? Uh, I am at Eric Ostrich on Twitter and Ostrich on GitHub. And Michael? It's MMM Reese. Mm, Reese. And I'm at Brainlid on Twitter. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.